Good day. Welcome to another episode of the Audible Local Ledger Reads to the Blind podcast. You can get more information at audiblelocalledger.org. Stay tuned for today's reading. Hi, this is Denise, reading to you the Monday, October 30th, 2023 edition of the Cape Cod Times. We begin with the weather. Today, a high of 65 with a low of 44, cloudy with a couple of showers. On Tuesday, happy Halloween, a high of 51 with a low of 42, some sun, then clouds and cooler. On Wednesday, occasional rain, a high of 48 with a low of 35. On Thursday, plenty of sun, a high of 51 with a low of 43. And on Friday, mostly sunny, breezy, and pleasant, a high of 61 with a low of 47. The sun will rise today at 7.10 a.m., set at 5.39 p.m., for a total of 10 hours and 29 minutes of daylight. In the lottery, the numbers game, Sunday, October 29th, midday, 0958. Again, 0958. The numbers game evening, 5055. Again, 5055. Mass cash for Sunday, October 29th. 1, 3, 4, 5, 27. Again, 1, 3, 4, 5, 27. And lucky for life, dated Sunday, October 29th. 17, 25, 35, 40, 47, with a lucky ball of 12. Again, 17, 25, 35, 40, 47, with a lucky ball of 12. On the front page, answering the call, Cape Cod Council of Churches Helping Migrant Families Prepare for Winter, by Zane Razig, Cape Cod Times, USA Today Network. Cape Cod Council of Churches is collecting winter hats, gloves, boots, and other items for newly arrived migrants bracing for a Massachusetts winter through October. For the third time, the Hyannis nonprofit is gathering donations for family housed at Joint Base Cape Cod, where 62 families are presently staying, and other migrants staying locally, including Yarmouth said Executive Director Edith Nesmith. When news of the settling of recent immigrant families came down, what we understood and received was that it happened very quickly, said Nesmith. Basic essential supplies were in short supply or not there. Three days after migrant families first arrived, the group brought four vans loaded with diapers, wipes, formula, clothing, underwear, and other items, said Nesmith. Later, at the end of the summer, the group switched into a second phase, inviting all faith communities to participate in donating requested items that included toys, clothes, shoes, hair products, and more. About 23,000 people are enrolled in the Emergency Housing Assistance Shelter, according to Governor Maura Healy. From November 1st, the state will no longer expand the number of shelter units. The expected capacity limit is set at 7,500 families, and that capacity could be reached by the end of the month. 
the capacity limit does not mean the end of the emergency housing assistance shelter program what to know all items must be clean and in good repair or should be new or gently used donations left in sturdy boxes are handled more easily than those pla packed in plastic bags items can be in all sizes for men women and children winter hats gloves boots coats sweaters snowsuits for babies car seat covers for infants hand warmers and umbrellas are all needed donations can be dropped off at the west yarmouth congregational church located at 383 route 28 on tuesdays between 2 and 4 p.m and wacoit congregational church located at 15 parsons lane in east falmouth will accept donations from tuesdays through fridays between 10 and 2 community shining nesmith said she was not sure what the cape cod council of churches would collect next for the families once this latest round is wrapped up they will reassure reassess to pinpoint the next need she said 11 different churches have participated in the drive to collect winter items once completed volunteers will bring the donations to the various shelters coordinating with the site managers this is what cape cod does really well step forward this is yet another example of our community shining more information is available on the cape cod council of churches website yarmouth seeks to ease accessory apartment rules more move intended to spur housing development by rashik tabasam munjib cape cod times usa today network yarmouth Voters at the November 7th special town meeting will deal with a number of routine housekeeping measures, but are expected to sharply focus on an article that eases restrictions on accessory apartments. The accessory apartments measure is contained in Article 19 on the warrant. According to a summary printed with the warrant, the change is meant to broaden the range of housing choices to residents by increasing the number of smaller dwelling units for year-round rental while at the same time protect the character appearance and property values of single-family neighborhoods the easing of restrictions is designed to provide housing to support a strong stable and diverse community maintain a sustainable local workforce and prevent displacing local residents according to the summary the new bylaw would also provide an opportunity for family members who choose to live in close proximity but separate from other family members to remain within a family environment. Why does Yarmouth need zoning amendments for accessory apartments? Accessory apartments are smaller, independent residential units on the same lot as a standalone single family home. According to the American Planning Association, they can take many forms, including detached, attached addition or part of the existing home. According to Town Administrator Robert Whitenauer, the subject of accessory apartments is much debated in Yarmouth. There is a bylaw that allows accessory apartments currently, but it is a little bit more restrictive, said Whitenauer. The new bylaws will take away some of the restrictions and make it a little bit easier to approve affordable housing units. Some towns, such as Brewster and Chatham, cap the number of accessory dwelling units that can be built each year. The planning board held over 27 public meetings throughout the past 12 months to develop amendments to the bylaw and hopes to address all the concerns residents had. The current zoning bylaw limits accessory apartments to family-related units or affordable units that include 
specific provisions related to deed restrictions, maximum rental rates, and tenant eligibility requirements. The new bylaw would eliminate the restrictions allowing the property owner to choose their tenants and rents. Article 19 needs a two-thirds vote to take effect. Articles 15 and 16 deal with changing the board's name from Board of Selectmen to the Gender Neutral Select Board. Creating Riverwalk Park at site of Old Drive-In Theater. Article 12 calls for creating Riverwalk Park at 669 Route 28, the site of a former drive-in, and setting up playground equipment, planting trees, installing lights, and other improvements. The article would clear the way for the town to secure $487,000 grant through a state program to reimburse the town according to the warrant. Community Preservation Act funding authorized at the 2023 annual town meeting provided the money for this reimbursement grant. A sister measure, Article 11, would grant Eversource an easement to lay utility lines in the park. The Selectmen and Finance Committee members have endorsed Article 2, which asks for $200,000 to pay for maintenance of the former Mattachie's Middle School building and gives the town permission to seek out any grant money. In August, the Dennis Yarmouth School Committee turned the former Mattachie's School over to the town. The Department of Public Works is looking for money to maintain the building, which would include providing electricity, gas, and HVAC maintenance. The town is planning on reusing the Mattachie's building. What is a town meeting? A town meeting is both an event and an entity, according to the Secretary of the Commonwealth's website. As an event, it is a gathering of town's eligible voters and is referred to as the town meeting. As an entity, it is the legislative body for towns in Massachusetts and is referred to simply as town meeting. Thirteen of the 15 Cape Cod towns, including Yarmouth, have open town meetings, meaning all voters who live in that town may vote on all matters. Falmouth, though, has a representative town meeting where all voters elect town meeting members who then vote on all town meeting matters. The town of Barnstable is governed by an elected town council rather than a town meeting. When and where is the Yarmouth town meeting? The Yarmouth town meeting is at 6 p.m. November 7th at the new intermediate school in South Yarmouth. The address is 286 Station Ave. Where can I find the warrant? For more warrant information, you can go to the yarmouth.ma.us website. Next on the front page, incumbent challenged by writing candidate, Barnstable Precinct 6 seat contested by Heather McCarran, Cape Cod Times, USA Today Network. A seventh race for the town's top governing board is in the offering for the November 7th town election after a writing campaign was announced. Paul Phelan has thrown his hat into the ring to represent Precinct 6 on the town council, challenging incumbent Paul Neary for his spot. There are also contests for the council seats representing Precincts 1, 2, 5, 9, 11, and 12, with five incumbents each facing a challenger in addition to one contest between two newcomers for the Precinct 9 seat councillor Tracy Shaughnessy is vacating. These races were featured in the Times' October 22nd print edition and are available for viewing online at capecodtimes.com. Below, read more about the candidates for Precinct 6. 
Paul Neary, age 60, Education, Barnstable High School. Class of 81, attended Mass Maritime, employment, owner, clean water pros, owner, air pros, Ashley Ford co-owner, Rusty's Incorporated GM, extensive business experience. Political experience, six years, precinct six, town councilor, liaison to multiple committees in town. Other community service, former youth coach, member of Our Lady of Victory Parish, campaign website, nearyprecinct6.com, campaign social media, facebook.com, what motivates you to run for this office? To give back to the town and its residents in a measured, reasonable, and considerate way. What are the most pressing issues facing the town council and how would you address them? There are many areas to manage and address in a town of this size, all of which can be considered pressing and need to be managed. There is no single pressing issue. Clean water, which I am professionally involved in, this includes well locations and treatment options necessary for the next 100 years. Sewering and its effect on our embayments and lakes and ponds, as well as financial implications, we as residents will need to fund. Housing as it relates to availability and affordability over the last decade, the Cape's housing crisis has accelerated, eliminating our children's and grandchildren's ability to live and work here. Our schools and how we educate and embrace our diversified population, our police and town staffing and how we attract and retain employees now and in the future, what differentiates you from other candidates? We as counselors may have different opinions on issues and paths to the town's needs and goals. We all use our own personal talents, time, and experience to make decisions. I have been proud to serve with them. In this way, we are all the same. As far as my precinct, I know more about my neighborhood than most anyone. Growing up on the Powderhorn Way and raising my family and now grandchildren on Henry F. Loring Road, I firmly believe that this is the best precinct. What we lack in lot size, we make up for and care for one another. The next candidate, Paul Phelan, aged 66, Education, Catholic Memorial High School, New England Maritime, Hyannis. Employment, retired after spending 33 years in the newspaper business as a union pressman foreman. Political experience, eager to exhibit my first time political skills, I'm a closet political junkie who cares deeply about Barnstable. Other community service, in my past I've driven for Meals on Wheels, taught CCD and confirmation classes, and coached youth hockey, soccer, and girls softball. Campaign website, writeinpaulphalen.com and writeinpaulphalen at gmail.com. Campaign social media, member of Barnstable Unofficial and Next Door. What motivates you to run for this office? My parents moved to Barnstable when my father retired from the Boston Police in 1982. It was then that I learned to love Barnstable. I want it to be as special for my three children and theirs as it is today. I'm motivated to meet the changing community and residents' needs in a way that keeps this place the draw it was for me and my parents. I'm also motivated to give voters a counselor who can give the precinct and the community's full attention. After a long, successful career, it's my time to give. I'll be all in. What are the most pressing issues facing the town council, and how would you address it? Number one, public safety. 
safe neighbors, and secure streets. Townwide speeding is a constant issue with folks I talk to. I pledge to support and rank and file officers who bravely serve and protect us. Number two, local business. Supporting our businesses to the best of our ability is a priority. We want a strong Main Street with adequate workforce housing. Number three, protect our water. Tourists come here for our seafood and beaches. Let's not kill the goose that laid the golden egg. Number four, having the best public schools possible is a high priority. They are the foundation of our town. Therefore, I look forward to having oversight. I do not come to the job as a policy expert. I bring commitment and time to get things right and done. I will listen. I will spend a lot of time talking to residents and local businesses to understand and execute what they want. I will do my homework and work collaboratively with others to, more, to move solutions forward. What differentiates you from other candidates? I stepped out to be a writing candidate when I learned the incumbent had no opponent and voters would have no choice. I believe voters deserve choices. I also believe voters in my precinct will appreciate a counselor who will give them and the issues full attention. I'm that person. I bring a lifetime of experience that will inform how I do this job. I know firsthand the struggles of working families to feed their children, pay the mortgage, and keep the lights on. With new leadership, I believe we can make Barnstable a better place together. When and where is the Barnstable election? Polls will be open from 7 a.m. to 8 p.m. on Election Day, November 7th. Polling takes place in various locations according to precinct. If you don't know which precinct you are in, you can visit sec.state.ma.us. Precinct 1 is at Zion Union Church on 805 Atux Lane, Hyannis. Precinct 2, St. George's Greek Orthodox Church. Precinct 3, Barnstable Adult Center. Precinct 4, Our Lady of Victory Hall. Precinct 5, Osterville Fire Station. Precinct 6, Jim of Christ Chapel. Precinct 7, Freedom Hall. Precincts 8, 9, and 13, Hyannis Youth Center. Precincts 10 and 12, 7th-day Adventist Community Building. Precinct 11, Barnstable Community Building. In the Cape and Islands section, photo shoot, Fire Safety Month observed on Cape Cod with training drills by Steve Heelslip, Cape Cod Times, USA Today Network. Fire drill, the words conjure up memories of grade school in upstate New York when the alarm would ring. We would all quietly form a single file line by class and evacuate the building, usually into a cold winter day, waiting for the fire department to come and silence the alarm. There was also the duck and cover drill. The school janitor would walk the halls cranking some sort of air raid siren and the kindergarten students and Mrs. Cardman's class joined the rest of the school curling up under our desks covering our heads waiting for the all-clear announcement. This was the height of the Cold War in the early 1960s. October is Fire Safety Month, so designated in the 10th month to commemorate the Great Chicago Fire that started on October 8, 1871. Housing and technology have joined together, and in 2023, our living spaces are much safer. But safety never takes a holiday. Elementary school students still walk to their local fire departments to collect red fire hats and recite the stop, 
drop and roll plan along with other fire safety tips to take home. Cape Fire Departments train year-round with dive drills, ice rescues, hazardous material spills, and live burn drills. The hazards are many and the training is constant. The Centerville Osterville Marston's Mills Fire Department, known as COMM, invited me along for a training mission last week. A vacant old cottage on Waquiquet Lake was slated for demolition and the owners gave a nod to the department to use it for a variety of on-site training. A harmless thick smog. A theatrical smoke machine filled the upstairs with a harmless thick smog that reduced visibility to almost nothing. A training scenario was set, second floor bedroom fire. The first crew in stretched a line well into the first floor, then manhandled it up a tiny set of old stairs. The charged hose sent a steam stream of water out into the broken out window as the search began for victims. A second crew moved in to assist in the search. Imagine pulling up at night to a strange house, crawling around on your knees with an air pack on, trying to find a victim in pitch black conditions. Hollywood has done a great job of pumping in a lot of light for action fire scenes in films and movies. But the real thing, even simulated, is just a maze of darkness navigated by hands when about 12 inches of visibility from a headlamp in a short order. The crew had located and hauled a weighted victim, mannequin down the stairs and out into the sunlight of a brilliant October morning. There is a lot taken for granted in this high-tech age of artificial intelligence and instant everything. As October winds down, it is reassuring to know public safety crews are the boots on the ground just a phone call away 24-7-365. Included with the article is a photo of a fireman in a very foggy, dense-looking room with a hose that reads, Crews advance a line into the first floor before moving it into the second floor during a Wednesday morning training drill for firefighters at the Centerville-Osterville-Marston's Mills Department at a home on Point of Pines Road in Centerville that will be demolished. The smoke was generated from a smoke machine. Photo by Steve Heelslip, Cape Cod Times. The next Cape and Islands story. Dennis voters face decisions. Historical preservation ambulance expenses on ballot for November 9th. By Rashik Tabasa Munjib, Cape Cod Times, USA Today Network, Dennis. Out of the 24 articles on the November 9th special town meeting warrant, seven seek to tap into Community Preservation Act money to pay for upkeep of town historical sites. Article 4 will ask voters to transfer $720,000 out of an ambulance receipts to buy a new ambulance at no direct cost to taxpayers. We usually ask voters to vote on it in annual town meetings, but since there's a several-year wait for it, we're talking about it now, said Select Board Chair Christopher Lambden. Article 17 will ask voters to transfer $1.5 million from free cash into the Wastewater Stabilization Fund, which will offer benefits for the town down the line. The future of the former Nathaniel H. Wixon Innovation School in South Dennis is dealt with in, in Article 23, seeking $300,000 for the cost of assessment, survey, and testing of the grounds. There's a lot of land there, and we need to make sure that what we do, we do the right thing with it. It's a great piece of property in the heart of the town, and I think we'll be able to do some great work with it in the future. 
Why do historical preservation plans matter in Dennis? Among the articles using Community Preservation Act money, Article 5 seeks 41000 to spruce up Dennis Village Cemetery, and Article 6 seeks 28000 for architectural consultants to repair the Hosea Dennis Mans Museum. These articles are a kind of showing that the town of Dennis loves its history in old buildings. We're doing a better job of preserving these and keeping them up to date so that the way the historical sites will be with us for decades more. The Dennis Historical Commission is planning to build a brand new memorial to the American Revolution in Article 10. The voters will be asked to approve a transfer of $5,000 from free cash to create a memorial. We don't have a revolution memorial in town yet, and so the commission plans to build a new memorial to keep the history alive. What is town meeting? A town meeting is both an event and an entity, according to the Secretary of the Commonwealth website. As an event, it is a gathering of a town's eligible voters and is referred to as the town meeting. As an entity, it is the legislative body for towns in Massachusetts and is referred to simply as town meeting. 13 of the 15 Cape Towns, including Dennis, have open town meetings. When and where is Dennis Town Meeting? The Dennis Town Meeting is at 7 p.m. November 9th at the New Intermediate School at 286 Station Ave in South Yarmouth. Where can I find the warrant? You can visit the Town of Dennis website. The next Cape and Islands story. Nearly paid for. $3 million grant will fund Wellfleet Sewer Plant for Housing by Denise Coffey, Cape Cod Times, USA Today Network, Wellfleet. The town was awarded a $3 million Mass Works grant Wednesday for the 95 Lawrence Road Housing Project Wastewater Treatment Facility. The Mass Works program issues grants to municipalities for the design, construction, building, land acquisition, rehabilitation, repair, and other improvements to the publicly owned infrastructure, according to the state website. The $4.6 million project was approved at special town meeting in September. The project includes the construction of a wastewater treatment facility that will provide the required infrastructure to support the 46-unit affordable housing project, the police and fire stations, and the elementary school. Bonding was approved for the project at the special town meeting and is authorized for the remaining $1.6 million. The award comes after a three-year effort by the Clean Water Advisory Committee whose first grant proposal three years ago was declined. Chairman Kurt Felix said the committee had been encouraged to continue pursuing grants. One year ago, the committee was told the project was considered a high priority. He said since then, the committee, two consultants, and assistant town manager Rebecca Ruffley, who has since left the position, worked on the proposal. I'm just delighted, Felix said by the phone Thursday. The town experts to put the project out to bid early next year, according to town manager Rich Waldo. A future expansion of the wastewater treatment facility is planned, it's expected to serve a number of neighboring properties. Construction of the 95 Lawrence Road housing project is expected to be completed in February 2026 with possible move-in dates in May 2026, according to the Wellfleet Housing Authority website page. We've reached the halfway point of today's reading of the Cape Cod Times. It's time for the obituaries. Michael Thomas Fitzgerald of Centerville. 
Michael Thomas Fitzgerald passed away peacefully on October 26th at Kaplan Family Hospice House in Danvers, Massachusetts. Mike is survived by his wife, Betsy, and daughters, and other loved ones and family. Visiting hours will take place on Thursday, November 2nd from 4 to 7 p.m. at Eaton Funeral Home, 1351 Highland Ave in Needham, Massachusetts. The funeral service will take place on Friday, November 3rd at 11 a.m. at St. Joseph Parish, 1360 Highland Ave in Needham. Following the funeral, the Fitzgerald family invites family and friends to celebrate Mike's life at the Needham Golf Club at 49 Green Street. In lieu of flowers, please consider making a contribution to the New England Center and Home for Veterans or Francis Cumet Scholarship Fund. For a full obituary, please visit EatonFuneralHomes.com. The next, Alan Stewart McEachern of Valdosta. Alan Stewart McEachern, 83, of Valdosta, Georgia, passed away Thursday, October 26th at Pruitt Health Lake Haven. He was born on December 23, 1939, in Brockton, to the late Donald and Doris McEachern. He was the owner and operator of Awnings by Peterson. Alan was a private pilot and had a love for flying. He was an antique auto enthusiast. Survivors include his wife of 60 years, Joan McEachern, and other loved ones and family members. Per his wishes, he will be cremated with no formal services. Family and friends are invited to share memories and sign an online guest book at www.musicfuneralservices.com. Back to our stories. Maine Town Holds Vigil After Shooting. Details emerge about attacker after found dead by Eduardo Cuevas, USA Today. The suspected shooter in the rampage that ended 18 lives on Wednesday had legally purchased the guns police believe he used in the mass killings at a bowling alley and bar he'd previously frequented in Maine. The 40-year-old Army reservist authorities had been pursuing for days was found dead late Friday. Robert Card's body was inside a semi-trailer at a recycling center. He died of self-inflicted gunshot wounds, officials said. On Saturday morning, officials provided new information about their investigation into the attacks, sharing a note they'd found Thursday they believe had been left by card. During the sweeping search for the suspect in rural southern Maine, three of his family members were the first people to come forward and identify card of nearby Bowdoin as the perpetrator of the shootings, Michael Shawshuck, the state public safety commissioner told reporters. Officials said Card was familiar with both the just-in-time recreation bowling alley, where seven people died, and Schmegagee's Bar and Grill, where eight men died, both in Lewiston. Three more people died in local hospitals. The search for the suspected shooter since Wednesday night prompted shelter-in-place orders that local state and federal officials searched across wide swaths of the region. Sawshuck said the note found in Card's home appeared to be addressed to a loved one and included passcodes for a phone and bank account. Officials are working to get search warrants to access the phone and bank codes. On Friday, officials focused on the manhunt along the Androscoggin River where white Subaru station wagon belonging to Card was found on a boat ramp about eight miles from Lewiston. A long gun was found inside the car. 
The Washington Post reported that investigators suspected Card used a .308 rifle in the shootings, though Shawshuck wouldn't specify the type of rifle found in the Card or the other firearms recovered near his body. At about 7.45 p.m. Friday, officials found the body of the suspected shooter in the back of the trailer at the Maine Recycling Corporation's overflow parking lot, just southeast of Lewiston in Lisbon near the river. It's unclear when he died, Shawshuk said. He appeared he was wearing the same sweatshirt as when he was seen fleeing the shootings. The owner of the business told officials Card knew the property, which had more than 55 trailers parked across the street from the business, and its overflow lot, which hadn't been searched. Shawshuk confirmed police had searched the area twice previously where the business is. The owner recommended looking through the trailers full of recycled materials. A couple of firearms were found on card. The guns recovered were legally purchased, officials said. Shawshuk said the state had no record of them being forcibly committed to a mental health facility. Card was not on the state's yellow flag list that only allows law enforcement to limit gun ownership. A spokeswoman for the Maine Attorney General's office confirmed to USA Today. State officials said they didn't have information about his status in the Army Reserves, but the Associated Press reported military commanders became concerned about Card's safety last summer and asked for police to be called. Card was taken to an Army hospital at West Point for an evaluation. On Saturday morning, President Joe Biden called it a tragic two days for families in Maine devastated by gun violence. At least 18 souls brutally slain and more injured and scores of family and friend praying and experiencing trauma no one ever wants to imagine, Biden said in a post on X, formerly known as Twitter. We're grateful that Lewiston and surrounding communities are now safe. I thank the brave law enforcement officers who worked around the clock to find this suspect. Officials on Saturday said they have opened a family assistance center and counseling center for residents. A vigil was scheduled for Saturday evening. He said both businesses in Lewiston were gathering spots that anyone could have been visiting on any given night. That wasn't my night, he said, and suggested if others are having the same thought that it could just be as easily have been them. You want to talk to somebody about that. Church bells rang Sunday as Maine residents gathered at somber and sometimes joyful services to pray and support one another, following a traumatic week in which a fellow Mainer gunned down 18 people in the worst mass killing in state history. The Reverend Daniel Greenleaf began services at the Basilica of St. Peter and Paul in Lewiston with a moment of silence. Then he told the congregation that it was good to be able to finally pray together after days of lockdown imposed while police searched for card. Several women wore black veils in the carnivorous sanctuary where a church official said they are raising funds to help shooting victims and others hurt by the horrible events in our small town. We can see the rays of light and darkness, Greenleaf said during his sermon. He told the worshipers that it's time like this that they have practiced their faith for. We cannot fix this, but then again, human beings are not machines to be fixed. Standing outside the basilica after attending early mass, Marcel Worry said the last few days have been painful, but that he's hopeful the community can begin the long process of healing. The next story. Syphilis, other STD cases on the rise. State loses millions of dollars to battle them. By Kenya Hunter, the Associated Press. 
State and local health departments across the U.S. found out in June they'd been losing the final two years of $1 billion investment to strengthen the ranks of people who track and try to prevent sexually transmitted diseases, especially the rapid increase of syphilis cases. The fallout was quick. Nevada, which saw a 44 percentage point jump in syphilis from 2021 to 2022, was supposed to get more than $10 million to bolster its STD program budget. Instead, the state's STD prevention budget went down by more than 75 percent, reducing its capacity to respond to syphilis, according to Don Cribb at the Nevada Division of Public and Behavioral Health. Several states told the Associated Press that the biggest impact from having the program canceled and the national debt ceiling deal is that they're struggling to expand their disease intervention specialist workforce. These people do contact tracing and outreach and are a key piece of trying to stop the spread of syphilis, which reached a low point in the U.S. in 2000, but has increased almost every year since 2021. There were 176,713 cases, up 31% from the prior year. It was devastating, really, because we had worked so hard to shore up our workforce and also implement new activities, said Sam Burgess, the SDD HIV program director for the Louisiana Department of Health. His state was slated to receive more than $14 million overall, but instead got $8.6 million that must be spent by January 2026, and we're still scrambling to try to figure out how we can plug some of these funding gaps. While men who have sex with men are disproportionately impacted by syphilis, the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and health officials across the country also point to the increase in pregnant women who are passing syphilis to their babies. It can cause serious health issues for infants, including blindness and bone damage, or lead to stillbirths. Disease intervention specialists often link infected mothers and their partners with a care for syphilis, which has mild symptoms for adults like fevers and sores. Doing so in a timely manner can, can prevent syphilis. The specialists also help pregnant patients find prenatal care. When you have a mother who didn't know, it can be a very emotional trying to explain. It could have been prevented if we could have caught it before. Lupita Thornton, a public health investigator manager in the health department, said she is worried about being able to treat pregnant syphilis patients before 30 days of delivery for the baby, baby's sake. The Houston Health Department is in the midst of what it calls a rapid community outreach response because syphilis cases increased by 128% among women from 2019 to 2022. Its STD HIV Bureau was set to receive a total of $10.7 million from the federal grant, but will end up getting about 75% of that. The department has used the money to hire disease intervention specialists, including Graves, but Thornton said he should not use double of everything and had planned to bring down the caseload for investigators by hiring even more people. It would help Graves, who deals with more than 70 cases at a time. you got people that don't want to go in and get treatment. You have people that don't want to answer the phone, so you've got to continue to call. Mississippi is also seeing an uptick in syphilis cases, which recently published studies showed rose tenfold between 2016 and 2022. The Mississippi State Department of Health was supposed to get more than $9 million in federal grant money over five years. Agency head Dr. Dan Edney said one of its top priorities is now finding money from other parts of the state's health budget.
He said the state has been challenged because of limited state funding and will need to cannibalize resources from every program. We can, we can so that the increase our diagnostic rates on treatment. Arizona has the highest rate of syphilis in the nation, 232.3 cases per 100,000 live births. The federal money helped the State Department of Health Services clear out a backlog of several thousand non-syphilis SDD investigations that had been stalled. We were finally at a point where we were able to breathe again and it start and start really kind of tackling it. You don't know what challenges are going to come. You know they're going to come. You just keep getting creative because our job is really to get services to folks. And that doesn't change just because your funding is cut. Nation and World Briefs Bill Barr hits back at Donald Trump. His verbal skills are limited. Washington Former Attorney General Bill Barr, a frequent target of Trump's rhetorical attacks, fired back Friday by mocking the former president's occasional lack of coherence. His verbal skills are limited, Barr said during an event at the University of Chicago's Institute of Politics. The moderator had referred to some recent Trump tirades and asked Barr if the former president was losing it. Barr cited Trump's lack of verbal dexterity. If you get him away from the very, 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 you know the adjectives, they're unfamiliar to him and they sort of spill out and he goes too far, Barr said. He added, he's not very disciplined when it comes to what he says. Shooting kills two, injures 18 victims in Florida Street, Tampa, Florida. A fight between two groups turned deadly in Florida when a shooting in a Tampa street during Halloween festivities resulted in two deaths and 18 people hospitalized early Sunday morning, police said. One suspect is in custody and at least one more is being sought. At least two shooters opened fire just before 3 a.m. on the 1600 block of East 7th Avenue in the Ybor City area, Tampa Police Chief Lee Burkow said during a press conference at the scene. The fight occurred in an area with several bars and clubs, and there were large numbers of late-night revelers in the area at the time. Police were not immediately sure if the people involved in the flight were inside any of the bars before the shooting. Tampa Police spokeswoman Joni Lewis said hundreds of people were out on the streets as numerous night spots closed early Sunday. She said one person was detained, but no charges were immediately filed. They're being questioned and will go from there. Ohio High Court upholds prison term in thefts from nursing homes, Columbus, Ohio. The Ohio Supreme Court has upheld a 65-year prison term imposed on a central Ohio woman who pleaded guilty to stealing jewelry and other valuables from several dozen elderly residents at a nursing home and assisted living facilities. Former nurse's aide Susan Gwynn pleaded guilty in 2016 to 46 of 101 charges, including burglary, theft, and receiving stolen property. As part of the plea deal, she acknowledged stealing jewelry, watches, and other items from residents of senior living facilities. Gwen told the judge she began stealing items from patients' rooms to support her cocaine habit while working as a nurse at an assisted living facility in 2004. She said she was later fired but kept going to facilities in Delaware County and Franklin County in her uniform and stealing from rooms. Investigators found more than 3,000 items at her home. 
the high court's decision wednesday follows a tangled history of appeals Macron vows to enshrine women's rights to abortion paris president emmanuel Macron promised on sunday to enshrine a woman's right to an abortion in the french constitution by next year the president said on former ex formerly twitter that a bill marking this possible possible would be presented to his cabinet by the end of this year so that in 2024 the freedom of women to have an abortion will be irreversible in the people in the news section swift has reached billionaire status analysis says taylor swift has done something rare in this day and age become a billionaire almost exclusively from music between the ongoing International Ezra tour, several weeks of her blockbuster tour film, and the re-release of a nine-year-old album, 1989, plus two decades of popularity, Swift, 33, has officially earned the title of billionaire, according to an analysis from Bloomberg released Thursday. Swift's U.S. concerts added $4.3 billion to the country's gross domestic product this year, Bloomberg estimates. Bloomberg said its analysis is a conservative and based only on assets and earnings that could be confirmed or traced from publicly disclosed figures. Still, the analysis took into account the estimated value of Swift's music catalog and five homes and earnings from music sales, concert tickets, streaming deals, and merchandise. Other music musicians that have reached billionaire status include Rihanna, who last year was declared the world's richest female musician, as well as Jay-Z and Yee, formerly known as Kane West. Rushidi could confront man charged with stabbing him at trial. Author Salman Rushidi could take the stand against the man charged with repeatedly stabbing him before a lecture when the defendant goes on trial early next year, a prosecutor said Friday. He is on the people's witness list now, heading into trial. The district attorney, Jason Schmidt, said following a court hearing in which the judge scheduled the trial for January 8th. Hedi Madar, 25, has pleaded not guilty to charges of assault and attempted murder. Authorities said the New Jersey resident left the audience and rushed the stage where the Satanic Verses author was about to speak in August 2022, stabbing him more than a dozen times before onlookers intervened. Rushidi, 76, who was left blinded in the right eye and with a damaged left hand, wrote about the attack in a memoir, Knife Mediations, after an attempted murder due out April 16th. Matar has been in custody since immediately after the attack at the Institution and Arts of Intellectual Retreat in the rural southwest corner of New York State. Fire Rose credits Cyrus Dog for introducing them on the set. Canine intervention brought together newlyweds Fire Rose and Billy Ray Cyrus more than a decade ago. In a Kelly Clarkson show clip released Thursday, Australian singer Firehose, who married Cyrus on October 10th, shared the funny story of how the couple first met. I was talking out at an audition in Hollywood, and Billy's dog at the time, Tex, who was the most beautiful German shepherd you've ever seen, he was tapped into some divine purpose, Firehose told Clarkson. That was like 14 years ago, so all these years later, we just got married. At the time, Billy Ray was filming Hannah Montana at Sunset 
Bronson Studios with daughter Miley Cyrus and was taking a break with Tex when he encountered Fire Rose, according to a 2022 interview the couple did with, the Pe with People magazine. He offered to take her inside the set and introduce her to the Disney Channel show's producers. Don't ever take a strange man up on this offer, but in this case, Tex will testify that you will be totally safe. Cyrus recalls saying at the time, I'm going to introduce you to a producer and you can kind of make yourself at home and watch us rehearse. And you know, maybe it might lead to a role or just another contact at Disney. They kept a solid friendship over the years, Firehose Rose told people. In local sports, Nantucket Vineyard debut Battle of the Atlantic with All Sports by Andre Sims, Cape Cod Times, USA Today Network. The rivalry between Martha's Vineyard and Nantucket High School athletics goes back decades. The two islands, separated by about 30 miles of water, have gone to battle year after year, with the football teams competing each year in the annual Island Cup. The cup has been played for more than 40 seasons, but the trophy was only for football. That begged the question, what about the other sports? With all the teams playing, what could be done to make each and every game hold a similar weight? The beginning of the process was the decision to schedule multiple games at the same time at the same school. That was two years ago, and entering year three, something was still missing. So Nantucket Athletic Director Travis Lombardi reached out to his counterpart at Martha's Vineyard, Athletic Director Mark McCarthy, after Nantucket's girls' soccer coach Doug Lebrecht approached him with an idea to add a trophy. A collaboration was born between the three of them and more coaches, and from all of it, the Battle of the Atlantic and the Golden Anchor Trophy were born. The plan that ensured that every winning team on the day got the chance to hoist a trophy as a team. We just thought that in this day and age, with all the sports that we offer and all the sports that we play against one another, we just thought it was time, Lombardi said. Who won at the Battle of the Atlantic? The first annual battle in the Atlantic took place on a sunny Saturday at Nantucket High School with what felt like the entirety of both islands in attendance. An 11 o'clock boys soccer matchup kicked off a full slate of games with that game ending in a 2-0 win for the Vineyarders. The Whalers field hockey team avenged that loss winning its game 6-0. Whalers field hockey co Coach Dan Weber said after the win that he loved the fact that his team got a chance to claim a trophy and to play in front of a larger crowd. We don't get this amount of fans at a regular midweek field hockey game, so it's really cool to see the support that the girls had. And I'm just super happy we played well and walked away with the win. Martha's Vineyard Girls Soccer tipped the scale back in the Vineyarders' favor with 4-1 win over the Whalers, setting up the most critical Island Cup in recent memory. Who won the football game? Martha's Vineyard football team entered the game at a 4-3 and ranked number 22 in the MIAA Division 5 power rankings. Nantucket, meanwhile, entered 3-4 and coincidentally also at a number 22, the Division 7 power rankings. Besides regional bragging rights and the Island Cup trophy, both teams entered needing to win to potentially make the state tournaments, yet even that wasn't the only thing on the line. With conference realignment, there also a Cape and Islands league title on the line, a title that the Vineyarders claimed with the win. The game ended with a dramatic 
24-21 win for Martha's Vineyard, taking the record 5-3 and successfully retaining the Island Cup after winning it for the first time in seven seasons. It wasn't a win that came easy for head coach Tony Motala's squad. Early self-inflicted wounds meant the Vineyarders were in a 14-0 hold before they had even really settled into the game. We shot ourselves in the foot with some penalties and we shot ourselves in the foot with some turnovers and I just thought our kids had unbelievable resiliency from the beginning to end. They never gave up the belief that we were going to win this football game. What Matola loved most post-game was the fact that at no point did he see quit in his team. Mistakes directly resulted in two of Nantucket's touchdowns, but Matola said his team kept battling, especially on the defensive side. I just thought our defense never gave up hope. We had a lot of new kids coming through and getting some work, and I just thought it was like next man up type of mentality. Through it all, it took resiliency, it took a little bit of luck, and it took a collective spirit to want to win that game. After the game, senior running back Guliherm Oliveira, who actually threw the game-tying touchdown pass on a fourth-down trick play, said the guts it took to win the Island Cup is really just reflective of the team as a whole. Like my coach says, you can knock us down, but we're going to come back up biting a chunk out of your knee, he said. And if you knock us down again, we're going to take a fatter chunk. Every time you knock us down, we're going to come back stronger. With emotions high at times, the execution suffered. The Whalers scored two non-offensive touchdowns courtesy of Martha's Vineyard mistakes. And as a team, the Vineyarders overcame multiple lost fumbles and interception and multiple turnovers or downs. Even when costly mistakes threatened to derail any would-be comeback, the Vineyarders kept responding. Ultimately, they didn't even take the lead until kicker number 70 split the uprights on the field goal with three seconds left. Now at 5-3, to three, the Vineyarders will await their postseason fate. State tournament breath or not, a league title and a rivalry win make for a pretty successful season, but it's a season that almost never truly got going. After week five, Martha's Vineyard won two to three and had just dropped two straight. It was then Captain and Tori Brown said that the coach Mutella delivered a simple message to the group. He said, either you guys figure it out or we're done. So I think we figured it out and we decided to stop being sucked into the storm and became the storm instead. How did Nantucket do for the Island Cup? There were plenty of bright spots for Nantucket. Sophomore Jay Nolasco got his hands on a first quarter punt, which he then caught out of the air himself before being tackled into the end zone. Nolasco was also blocked an extra point attempt in the second half. Another sophomore, James Dutra, was the one who scooped up the fumble and took it to the house. As a whole, the Nantucket defense played great and at the side of the ball had really spearheaded the team's evolution this year. The Island couple continued to call the Vineyard home for another year. Meanwhile, Golden Anchor trophies now reside with both, but regardless of who holds them, they're here to stay. And we end our reading today with Today in History. Today is Monday, October 30th, the 303rd day of 2023. There are 62 days left in the year. On this date, in 1885, poet Ezra Pound was born in Haley, Idaho. In 1912, Vice President James S. Sherman 
running for a second term of office with President William Howard Taft, died six days before Election Day. In 1938, the radio play The War of the Worlds, starring Orson Welles, aired on CBS. In 1945, the U.S. government announced the end of shoe rationing effective at midnight. In 1961, the Soviet Union tested a hydrogen bomb, the Tsar Bomba, with a force estimated at about 50 megatons. In 1972, 45 people were killed when an Illinois Central Gulf commuter train was struck from behind by another train on Chicago's south side. In 1974, Muhammad Ali knocked out George Foreman in the eighth round of a 15-year round bout in Kinshasa Zar, known as the Rumble in the Jungle, to regain his world heavyweight title. In 1975, the New York Daily News ran the headline, Ford to City, Drop Dead, a day after President Gerald R. Ford said he would vote veto any proposed federal bailout of New York City. In 1995, by a razor-thin vote of 50.6% to 49.4%, Federalists prevailed over separatists in a Quebec succession of referendum. In 2000, comedian television host and composer Steve Allen died in Encino, California at the age of 78. In 2001, Ukraine destroyed its last nuclear missile silo, fulfilling a pledge to give up the vast nuclear arsenal it had inherited after the breakup of the Soviet Union. In 2005, the body of Rosa Parks arrived at the U.S. Capitol, where the civil rights icon became the first woman to lie in honor in the rotunda. President George W. Bush and congressional leaders paused to lay wreaths by her casket. In 2012, the Walt Disney Company announced that it would buy Lucasfilm LTD for $4.05 billion, paving the way for a new Star Wars trilogy. And in 2013, the Boston Red Sox romped to their third World Series championships in 10 seasons, thumping the St. Louis Cardinals 6-1 in Game 6 at Fenway Park. We've reached the end of our reading for today, Monday, October 30th, 2023, of the Cape Cod Times. Looks like a rainy day. Have a good one.